Justice Gorsuch has our opinion this morning, case 171672, United States versus Haymond. This case concerns the right to a trial by jury. The framers of our Constitution regarded the jury as both a vital protection for the accused and an essential feature of our system of self-government. To them, a jury made up of ordinary men and women formed a bulwark between the rights of individuals and the power of the state. And much as the right to vote preserves the people's authority over the government's legislative and executive functions, the right to a jury trial preserves the people's authority over its judicial functions. Under the Fifth and Sixth Amendments the framers adopted, the government must prove every criminal charge to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. That means a judge's authority to impose a sentence derives solely from the facts reflected in the jury's verdict. In other words, a jury must find every fact essential to an individual's punishment. Historically, application of this rule of jury control proved pretty straightforward, but recent legislative innovations have placed this guarantee under stress. For example, in Apprendi versus New Jersey and Elaine versus the United States, this court faced statutes that increased the range of penalties a defendant could face based on new facts found only by a judge and only by a preponderance of the evidence rather than facts found by the jury beyond a reasonable doubt. This Court responded by holding both of those sentencing schemes unconstitutional, explaining that no less than at the founding, a jury today must find any fact that elevates a defendant's sentencing range. With this background in mind, we approach the case now before us. Initially, a jury convicted Andre Haymond of a crime that carries a prison term of anywhere between zero and ten years in prison. A judge sentenced him to about three years and a term of supervised release to follow. So far, everyone agrees, so good. But later, while Mr. Haymond was on supervised release, the government accused him of violating the terms of that release. And this time, Mr. Haymond didn't get to go before a jury. Instead, the government sought to revoke his release and secure a new prison term before a judge. And after the hearing, the judge found Mr. Heyman guilty by a mere preponderance of the evidence, at which point the question again turned to sentencing. Under 18 U.S.C. Section 3583K, a provision Congress recently enacted, the judge was required to impose a new mandatory minimum prison term of five years. Now, by now, the problem's probably probably pretty clear here. Based on the facts found by a jury, beyond a reasonable doubt, Mr. Heyman faced a prison term of zero to ten years. But thanks to the new statute, he now faced a new mandatory minimum of five years in prison, based only on facts found by a judge and only by a preponderance of the evidence. This procedure we hold violated the Constitution. The government seeks to avoid this conclusion in a variety of ways, but none persuades us. First, the government tries to distinguish Apprendi and Elaine by emphasizing that the improper judicial sentences there were handed down at an initial sentencing hearing. Meanwhile, Mr. Heyman received his new sentence in a supervised released revocation hearing. But as we recount in our opinion, this is a distinction without a difference. The Constitution cares about the substance of the proceeding, not its form. And this Court has long recognized that penalties for supervised release violations arise from and are treated as part of the sentence for the original criminal offense. Consider the alternative. If the government were right, 
you could be convicted of even of a modest crime and then put on supervised release for the rest of your life. Then a judge, acting without a jury and under a preponderance of the evidence only, could convict you of a violation and sentence you to just about anything. That cannot be right. In a world like that, the jury would no longer play the central role the framers envisioned. Next, the government tries a different approach. It suggests that Mr. Heyman's sentence was actually fully authorized by the jury's verdict because his original conviction included the possibility of a sentencing enhancement under Section 3583K. But this Court expressly rejected the same argument in Apprendi and Elaine. And what was true there can be no less true here, a mandatory minimum sentence that comes into play only as a result of additional judicial findings under preponderance of the evidence standard cannot stand. Finally, the government tries to analogize Section 3583K to the traditional practices of probation and parole that have long been understood to comport with our Constitution. But the analogy fails. Where parole and probation violations traditionally exposed a defendant only to the remaining prison term a jury had already authorized for the conviction, 3583K exposes a defendant like Mr. Heyman to an additional mandatory minimum prison term beyond what the jury has authorized. It's a new prison term based instead only on facts found by a judge under a preponderance of the evidence. As this Court has said before, and we reaffirm today, that offends the ancient right to a trial by jury. The opinion I've sought to summarize here briefly is joined by Justices Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Justice Breyer has filed an opinion concurring in the judgment. Justice Alito has filed a dissenting opinion in which the Chief Justice, Justice Thomas, and Justice Kavanaugh have joined. 